Uncertainty seems the watchword of the day. Fear is folded into too many moments. Images of terror crowd our news feeds. Sound health and employment slip through our fingers. And time and time again, our terra firma shows itself to be anything but. And yet, in the midst of all, if I surrender to stillness, your voice slices through the darkness. Come, come to me, you sing, grace ringing in your words. You who was and is and is to come, reach out, and I think about the horrors you withstood to purchase my peace. The Thomas in me is finally silenced. I lose myself in unmixed praise. I close my eyes. My face against the cool tile of your throne room floor is hot. I peek, lids trembling, and spy your strong bronze feet. The holes still there. You, Alpha and Omega, touch me, yet I do not burn away or wither, which causes me to marvel at the way you wield your power and your love. Uh, our first reading this morning is from John 20, 19 through 31. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for the fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you, and the Father has sent me. I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I shall not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Our second reading is from Revelation 1, 4 through 8. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, 
Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and who from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves and who has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The word of the Lord. Days are coming when God's glory will appear out of the midst of our pain, and we will sing a new song. A new song. We, uh, and yet our, uh, our playlists are stuck in the creative seasons of our lives. I hate to confess this, but uh, for Christmas this year, I, uh, I got Debbie uh, dance lessons at Arthur Murray. Yeah, have fun with that. Uh, and uh, we went to our first lesson, and I, I realized yet again just how clumsy I am. Uh, but more to the point, I realized how stuck my soundtrack was. Because what kind of music do you like? They kept asking. It's like... Well, here's my playlist, and it's, you know, sort of 1970s classic rock. I, I don't know how to describe it. it. My kids would say, it's boring music. That's what it is. We need to learn to sing the new song. The aria, as... Uh, an element of operatic theater uh, began as an opportunity to sell more gelato. It was at, between the second and third acts, a sort of second string soloist would come out and would begin to sing uh, just to sort of recap the story up to date and to point ahead to the future. And that was when the vendors went through, because these operas were three or four hours long, so people, you know, they got refreshments during the opera. We don't do that anymore. You know, we take an intermission, we go outside, and we, but while they're sitting there, the, the vendors are coming through the aisles selling gelato to the, so they're originally called the Aria di Gelato, the uh, song about ice cream. <laughs> and and uh, it begins that way, but but later and later, the aria begins to take on more important forms. It, it becomes uh, so often the, the lead song, the kickoff song, to mix my metaphors, uh, the, the, the kickoff song of, a, of an opera, where one of the grand soloists would begin the opera with this simple, unadorned, but passionate song, stating the themes of the opera that is about to be sung by this great choir. 
Jesus in his resurrection sings the aria. Not, not a break for ice cream and not the closure to history, but the opening up of a new story. The, the announcement of a new song. That a new thing is happening. And we read in John's gospel and later as he reveals uh, Jesus' story to the seven churches in Asia Minor, we read from John's voice Jesus' lyrics as he calls us to sing this new song. Jesus' resurrection voice comes to us in John 20, 19-31. It begins with what can only be understood as the Great Commission in John's Gospel. We think of the Great Commission as only being in Matthew. But actually each Gospel ends with a commission. Each Gospel calls us in a unique way to follow Jesus uniquely. Matthew's gospel says, go into all the world and preach the gospel, and baptize and all of that. But Jesus' commission in John is different. It, it begins with him simply appearing, not, not as, an, as, a, as an apparition, as, as amorphous ooze, but he appears as a human being, flesh and bone, to the disciples. He incarnates again. We, we think the incarnation is all done before the cross, but Jesus continues. The, the, the resurrection was a bodily event. It was a physical resurrection. And when we gather as the church, we become, in Paul's language, the body of Christ we continue to animate the person of Jesus in the world. We may not do it very well. In fact, we may do it kind of lousy, but we do it. It's what we're called to be. And so John's commission, Jesus' great commission in John's gospel, is first of all to incarnate the gospel, to live it out, to make flesh this good news. The good news isn't some amorphous thing over here that's unattainable until heaven. You know, we don't have to wait until we're an angel to do something good and get our wings. You know, that, that part of Frank Capra's vision maybe is a little bit skewed. Instead, we live out the gospel. It's our number one calling. And then Jesus does something. He invades our personal space. He breathes on the disciples. Come on, Jesus. Oral hygiene in first century Palestine is not what it is today. You breathe on them? And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Spirit, pneuma, breath. Spirit's always been represented by, by the force of air moving. So Jesus reenacts that. He incarnates that. He breathes on his disciples and he says, as the Father sent me to be incarnate in the world, 
That's exactly the same way I'm sending you. Receive the Holy Spirit. Live live with the Holy Spirit present in your life. And then the kicker. You know, he could have said anything else after that. And I would have gone, yay. But what he says is, if you forgive others, they'll be forgiven. If you don't, they won't. Forgiveness? Really? That's your commission? I would so much rather do Matthew's thing. Go into the world and preach the gospel. So much easier. John calls us through Jesus' words to a mission of forgiveness. Man, I hate it when that happens. And yet, as as Jesus points back to the beginning of the book of John with the incarnation and points back to the upper room with, with breathing on them the Holy Spirit, he points ahead to his own relationship with Peter and says this is what forgiveness looks like. Now, that wasn't an easy forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't, isn't cheap. It's, it isn't, oh, no, don't worry about it. My bad. You're okay. Forgiveness takes effort on the part of both people. Jesus will encounter Peter on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and will, will experience a conversation with Peter. And he'll say, Peter, do you, do you love me? You said, you said you didn't know me. Do you love me? And Peter, realizing his mistake, will say, yes, Lord, I love you. Well, then feed my sheep. And they'll do that, he'll do that three times. And, and in doing so, remind Peter and forgive Peter for his denial on the night of his arrest. Jesus embodied and lived out his own great commission in John's gospel. But of course, that wasn't the whole story here. The narrative continues. It reminds us that Thomas, the twin, wasn't in that upper room encounter. He, he missed that commission. He, he hadn't read the memo. And when he hears that Jesus showed up, he's, well, let's just say he was skeptical. And, and that's why I think so many 21st century North Americans relate to Thomas. Because at, at, in our hearts, most of us are skeptics. I, I'm a skeptic. I, I, I read the Gospels and I scratch my head and I go, really? That's what Jesus wants us to do? Can't we just, can't we just you know, love him and kind of, you know, Make him our boyfriend and, and, and everything will be cool. Can't I just put a little money in the offering basket and he'll bless me and everything will be all right? No. He wants us to live out forgiveness in the world. Thomas missed that event and he's skeptical. And so Jesus shows up again. And Thomas's skepticism his doubt in the resurrection is transformed into a proclamation of lordship. Because when Jesus 
comes to us, we may still be raging skeptics full of doubt, but we know that he is Lord. And then John pivots finally in verses 30 to 31 and reveals to us his purpose in writing the gospel. He, he writes this so that we might believe. That word believe gets us hung up all the time because as Westerners, we think believe is here's a set of propositional truth statements and we tick them off. Yeah, I agree with that one. I agree with that one. That piece thing, eh, not so much. Uh, I agree with this one and this one. That's not what believe means. The word here literally is translated that you might faith it. That you might live in a certain way so as to be dependent on a Christ who is invisible, on a spirit who breathes in you, and on a mission of improbable forgiveness. That's where John's going. John, apart from acknowledging Jesus as Lord, John's gospel and his writings, his letters, and the book of Revelation could care less about what propositional statements you make and how you check them off your to-do list. What he cares about is, are you faithing it? Are you following this Jesus? Are you his disciple? Are you forgiving others? That gets reinforced in the opening praise words in the book of Revelation. We, we've been here before. We've, we looked at the seven churches in Revelation chapters 1 through 3 back last summer. In this season of, of Easter, between now and the day of Pentecost, we'll be looking again at the book of Revelation because it's the epistle reading during this season. And before you, you know, get all sweaty and nervous and have heart palpitations that it's going to be a prophecy conference, let me assure you that what we're going to be looking at is the way the book of Revelation was put together because the book of Revelation doesn't care about the future. Sorry, hate to disappoint you. That's not its thrust. It is a letter to seven churches that historically existed in Turkey, what today is modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, and it's about how they're supposed to live in light of being part of an empire, controlled by Rome. How do we follow Jesus when Caesar is making claims on our lives? And the way the book is stitched together is that John will say some things about how to live, and then there'll be this grand vision of praise. There'll be these moments of doxology. Chapter 1, chapter 4, chapter 7, chapter 11, chapter 21 and 22. Don't be afraid of the book of Revelation. It's praising Jesus for being Lord of all and reminding us how to live that way. That's what it's about. The book of Revelation doesn't care about the future. 
Of course, I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. And so John begins his first word of praise with with a Trinitarian greeting to the churches. Now, that that sounds all, you know, theologically schmaltzy and all that, but, but what he's saying is, look, all of God matters to the way that you are the church. God's grace and peace is eternal. It's not just... It's not just to you. You're not just worthy of it because, oh, you're you're the church in Ephesus. You've entered a a great stream of God's cosmic efforts. It's grace and peace are eternal. And the Spirit, the sevenfold Spirit, inhabits each of the churches. So here's God the eternal and God the particular. And both of them Point to Jesus, the witness, it says in verse 5. Word witness in the Greek, it's the same word we get martyr from. Jesus, the martyr who is resurrected and who is Lord. See, when, when Caesar gets killed, and Caesar gets killed every so often in history, he stays dead. Jesus got killed. He bore witness to God's eternal grace and peace and breathed the particular Holy Spirit onto his followers. And he got killed, but he didn't stay dead, which makes him a better Lord than Caesar. And so John pivots to say more about Jesus. He says, Jesus loves us. And we all go, oh, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Yay, Jesus loves me. I feel so much better. Jesus also calls us. Ah, oh, man. He calls us. He calls us to a priestly vocation. He calls us to be his representatives in the world. A priest stands between the people and God and represents the people to God and God to the people. That's priestly ministry. And it's the vocation to which every single one of us is called. We are all priests. That's our vocation. Whatever it is you do for a living, wherever your paycheck comes from, is secondary to that call. To represent God to the world and to represent the world to a loving Jesus. But more than calling us, more than loving us, Jesus is also coming back, John says. Now, again, there are sort of two ways of looking at that. We can say Jesus is coming back and he's for his church and he's not very happy. That's not what John says here. John says... In the clouds, Christ will return. It's going to be an event. It's going to be huge. (laughs) He's returning, but he's not just returning as some champion. He's returning as Lord. He's in charge. And then John says, look, not only is Jesus 
the Lord who calls us to a vocation, who is returning. This Jesus is the punctuation marks of history. He is the Alpha. He is the A. And he is the Omega. He is the Z. He is, or for my Canadian friends out here, he is the Z. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's the beginning and the end, the first and the last. The all in all. He encompasses everything. Everything in the world, Christ touches. There is no thing, no place, nowhere. John is saying that we can flee to that Jesus isn't present. So when we feel those seasons of God-forsakenness in our lives, those dark nights of the soul, and I know we do. I do. I know you do. Intellectually, we can't get away with, God's abandoned me. Doesn't work that way. He may be quiet. He may be sitting in the corner of a dark room not saying very much. But he hasn't abandoned us. Christ never leaves nor forsakes. He is with us. He is the Alpha and the Omega. So the lyrics of the aria we are called to sing are simple. We're called to sing a song of forgiveness. We are commissioned to live a life of forgiveness even in the midst of our doubts. Even when we doubt who we're forgiving. And even if we doubt that forgiveness will do any good. We are called to a mission of forgiveness. Now that's not saying that we just sort of, eh, whatever you want to be, you know, you're okay, I'm okay, and if we happen to meet in the middle, isn't that wonderful? This is not the gospel according to Fritz Perls. Forgiveness is so much more than that, so much harder than that. It requires so much more from us than I'm okay, you're okay. Forgiveness requires from us the effort of staying in relationship even with people who we don't very much like. the church is really the family of God, then that which we say about our biological families also applies to the church. You, know, you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. Sometimes you can pick your church, but you can't always pick your congregation. We're, we're stuck with each other in the body of Christ. We're, we're going to... Newsflash, we're going to spend eternity with each other, so just settle in, okay? <laughs> and forgive one another. And for those who aren't yet turned towards Jesus, we forgive them as a witness to Christ's forgiveness and invite them to reorient their lives towards Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega. Secondly, our second lyric, our second stanza of the aria is that we need to sing that the Holy Spirit's in the church because, well, that's how the Holy Spirit works. It would be so much easier to be a Christian, really it would, if, uh, if God's mission of reconciling the world back to himself didn't have to flow through us. 
but God has chosen the church, not, not the church universal, but each particular church that the Holy Spirit breathes in to be witnesses, martyrs of reconciliation, to put our lives on the line for reconciliation in the world. Could we maybe do just a little less than that, Jesus, please? No, that's, that's discipleship. That's our song, that the Holy Spirit resides in the midst of the congregation because God has chosen the church, imperfect and broken as it is, to be the way in which he works in the world. I know that troubles us and disappoints us. We'd, we'd love it if God worked some other way, but... There it is. Look around. God's messengers, all of us. Hold on to your hats. The third verse in the aria we're called to sing is that we are called to a new vocation. We are priests preparing God's creation for the return of King Jesus. The gospel is bigger than just individuals. It isn't just about how many butts and benches or bucks and baskets we can count to say whether we're successful or not. The kingdom of God is about reconciling the cosmos, the entire created universe, back to God. We have been given a global, not a global, a, a cosmic priesthood. Now, I don't want to, you know, venture off into Tom Cruise La La Land here, but, <clears throat> but we've been called to something bigger than ourselves. That's what John is saying to us in these two passages, that, that following Jesus isn't about my life going well. It's about our lives counting for something for the reconciliation of everything back to God. So this morning, some questions for us to think about. Who is it that God's asking you to forgive? A, a face just flashed in front of you. Because it did for me. Several dozen faces, actually. <clears throat> Who is it that God is asking you to forgive. What are you going to do about that? How is Jesus speaking to you through your doubts? We think doubt is the opposite of faith, and it isn't. Doubt's the seedbed that faith grows in. It's until we're willing to be skeptical enough to really dig in and explore the claims of Christ that we really begin to take on the way of Christ. So what's Jesus saying to you through your doubts today? When we see over and over and over again the violence in this world, it's easy to doubt 
that Jesus is somehow the Prince of Peace. And yet, he clings to that. He says that. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. And I wish I had some kind of answer to figure out the Middle East or to figure out violence in inner cities or in suburbia. I just know that in the midst of my doubts, Jesus speaks. And he says, the answer lies in receiving the Holy Spirit and in doing the long, slow, hard work of forgiveness. Not the best answer I've ever received to a question. Would like, you know, more clarity. But that's where I live right now. That Jesus speaks to me in my own doubts. And so the third question I would raise is, what's the Holy Spirit saying to us as the church? The Spirit comes and, and resides in, in the particular congregation, in the moment. Christ and His Spirit are present with us as we gather. What's the Holy Spirit saying to us today? And then... Lastly, what's your life's vocation? Not, not what do you do for paycheck, but how are you living out receiving the Holy Spirit and forgiving others? How does that take form and shape in your life? Paul Beasley Murray is a New Testament scholar and uh, one-time principal of my alma mater, Spurgeon's College. And he writes in a book, The Message of the Resurrection, these words, To a dying world we proclaim the good news of life in Christ. Death no longer need have the last word, for Jesus is risen from the dead. There's purpose. There's hope. There is life for men and women of faith. Can we, like Thomas, see in that statement the incarnated sending Christ who is returning and who calls us to a vocation of priestly forgiveness and cling to that?